Hello everybody and welcome to What Would The Smart Party Do? This week we're going to talk about generating characters and of course uh, maybe what follows on from that, a bit of experience or experienced characters, who knows? And if there's one man I know who's got a lot of experience, it's my good friend Bass. How are you? I am 3D6 in order good. That's how good I am. 3D6 in order? Controversial. Not 4D6 and pick the three best? No, that's new school. Get off. No, you're, you're going to end up with survivable characters that way. Of course you want to die in the first 10 minutes. That's what makes gaming fun. <laughs> See, traveller. Yes, well, you could, you could die before you even started there, couldn't you? Famously. Yeah. Let's get those things out of the way straight away then. Yeah, because that's, that's what I mentioned, mate. Character, character generation is cool, but there is still, you cannot talk about character generation without going back to the mid-70s and talking about those things, and then you get to the good stuff. So, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, all right, mate, character generation. What are we talking about then? What's good, what's bad, what's ugly, what works, what doesn't, the usual kind of stuff? Yeah, I think so. I'll, I'll have to apologise to our listeners, first of all, that I've got a dreaded bout of man flu, so... I may be even more unintelligible than normal, but uh, they'll have to just have to uh, get through that. So that's what a two-point disadvantage. So you could probably like <laughs> have lasers coming out your eyes to pay for that. That's it. Well, you know, I have had characters before in games where the character, or the players, wanted to be paraplegic to get that extra different mind power or something. But there you are. It's Professor <laughs> X in his wheelchair to get his mind powers. There you are. So yes, let's start off at the beginning, shall we? From when we were we bands. And starting mm. off with character generation, and you used to get your book and you roll six sets of three d six, and those were your stats. So there was no picking your character, was there? You might have nope. in your head you want to be a wizard, but then you roll eighteen strength and three intelligence, and that kind of covers that. So what do you think about the old school web bars? Do you still do that anymore? Do you think it was good at the time? Did we just not know any better? Yeah, I, I think there was. Um, there's still people who play like that now, and sometimes it's kind of like you know, um, it's like an endurance thing, and kind of like look how tough I am. That, that I play this way. And, and clearly, some of that's nonsense because people play any way they want to. It doesn't make you a better gamer just because you can play a character that's got Charisma 4 and you <laughs> play it the way that you want to. Um, so I, I didn't mind it at all. I thought it was good. I think I think original D&D got an awful lot of things right, actually. Uh, it got an awful lot of things wrong, too, and it's been improved on. Of course it has. But you know what? I don't mind that. I don't mind rolling stats, and people still say rolling up a character. Because that put a little bit of game into the game straight away. And given that when you learned how to play role-playing games back then, you were probably on your own, especially if you were trying to be a, a DM. That was something you could do on your own. You'd get your notepad out and you could pick up your, your little dice that you'd crayoned in and roll them and just generate a string of six numbers. And you got the imagination going straight away. Not much if you rolled a series of 11s and 12s. That didn't really do much for you. So you just sort of tossed that to one side. But it was really exciting to get an 18. Less so if it arrived in Constitution, perhaps. And it was almost as exciting to get a 3 or a 4, especially if it was in <laughs> Dex, which is that, you know, the daddy stat. Always. But, it, but you ended up with a character before you'd done anything else at all because it immediately sort of funneled you into a way of thinking it sort of put little restrictions on what you could do with class and possibly race, stuff like that. And you, you immediately tried to either mitigate it with some other rulings or you thought, oh, sorry, I'll just go with it, really. Um, and, and don't forget that one of the beauties of that system is it's really, really fast. And even though original D&D was pretty deadly, it kind of the, the mitigation for that part was that you could genuinely roll up a character while the rest of the party carried on the fight and have one ready by the end of it. So... 
that speed element was really cool. And as games improved over the decades following it, the one thing they they lost was some of that speed, perhaps. And they had yeah. to make up for it in other ways that we'll talk about, I suppose, with templates to playbooks to other things that you have to do these days, and sometimes even using a computer. But I could still probably do a D&D or an AD&D character with a few dice in 10 minutes, max, from memory. That was a good thing. Yeah, the longest bit was picking your equipment, wasn't it? That was obviously yeah. the time-consuming element. Yeah, yeah I, re- I remember um, RuneQuest was pretty similar because that's Rune- old RuneQuest 2 that's recently come back out again or been kick-started once more. That was just super deadly because you had your mm. 10 hit points or whatever divided by your different locations. You had like three hit points in a leg. So somebody with a broadsword that did D8 plus one, chances are your leg's off. So you had to have characters ready to go in no time flat. Mm. Um, I think I found out odd about RuneQuest and I think I'll bring up the D&D thing as well of a... You know, a wizard with D4 hit points that could die to a dagger or stumbling or something like that. Is it perhaps a little too lethal early on? You know, when you make a character and... Did you ever get fatigue? I think one of the things I sort of struggle with perhaps early is trying to come up with different characters when they just died every session or perhaps more than once a session. You just constantly make up a new character. Did it kind of lose some of that where you tie yourself to a story or what is the background of my character that I'm trying to portray if you're constantly losing them and bringing on a new yeah. one? To a degree, I mean, I, I think you've got to put the whole thing into context, and, and all I can really do is go off my experience. So, back in the day when I was a kid learning how to play D and D, if you look at the way I played it, I played it in lunch hours at school, and I, I even played it on the bus on the way home from school. So, the game sessions that we played, they weren't the kind of three, four-hour sit-down around a nice piece of IKEA furniture that that we kind of do as grown-ups. And, and they certainly weren't where I'd have like six pages of background um, and a really invested kind of group character generation system where, where we had all kinds of bonds and relationships and ties to the world and all of that kind of stuff. It was perfectly acceptable. In fact, probably the only way you could do it was to say that your character was a fighter. And it, it kind of didn't graduate to getting a name until you hit level three. Because level three was, was where you got a bit more survivable. You certainly weren't invulnerable because you're never invulnerable in D&D because save or die right up to 20th level. <laughs> but, but we didn't die that often, actually. Not really. I, I die far more frequently in sort of modern old school games, if you know what I mean, like the retro clones, like Dungeon Crawl Classics and stuff like that, where you get rocks dropped on you because that seems to be part of the fun. I don't actually remember that happening much in, in early games of RuneQuest or Tunnels and Trolls or D&D. There were there were not that many character deaths, and clearly the GM was fudging stuff. Clearly, because um, they kind of knew that you only had four hit points, and when they rolled with their swipe of an owlbear claw, and they were rolling a D8, they would just say three, and, and you got paranoid and backed away, and you you, you kind of sucked it up. So I, I don't think death happened that much, not really. But if it had happened. There was always another character to play. I didn't mind the sort of disposable element of it because we'd be playing again the next lunch break. Sure, I think uh, I think death definitely happened in our ring quest days. I can tell you that for nothing. <laughs> it, it did happen a lot. Um, but one of the things we used to mitigate that, which was like I think in an appendix in the back somewhere, was you had previous experience you could have, which was another part of the interesting bit. You could sort of determine your background, um, which was quite a limited scope. It was kind of like a town folk or a barbarian or a nomad or something like that. Uh, mm. And then there was you could have been like maybe in a, a light cavalry outfit or a, 
a medium infantry hoplite or something like this, which give you some extra percentage points and a bit more chance to, to make it through the early days, if you know what I mean. Maybe a few mm. spells chucked in. Uh, and I think that, more than just the survivability element, was, was something that gave you a bit of idea. Even though at that stage we didn't really know what the different army units would be or which light cavalry unit I would have been part of. It gives you some sort of idea of where your characters come from. And mm. that, I think, um, rather than being, say, a fighter, you, you kind of have more of an idea that this guy used to uh, scout for the Lunar Army or something like that. You know what I mean? You straight away had a bit more, just a bit more meat on the bone with your character. And I think that's, as you say, early days it was in your lunch hours and stuff like that. But as we progressed to maybe college days and, and onwards, I think I certainly started to want a bit more to it than just uh, some numbers on a sheet. I don't know. Did you feel the same or did it come about a different way? You definitely did want more numbers on the sheet. And that, and that room crossing, I wasn't aware of that, actually. That sounds pretty cool. That's the sort of thing you see in modern games now. Um, in fact, D&D Fifth Edition puts a little background bit into into the game. It's not complicated. It's just a one or a two-liner, but it gives you a little package. And I like that. I mean, I used to find that just... And I still do. That sometimes I overthink character generation. That I went through a stage of doing way too much background. And, and any... What do you call too much? You call it too much when it never comes out of the table. That that that's when it's too much. If you've got some some sister that you were very close with when you grew up and she was abducted by slavers three years ago, which just doesn't sound like particularly a bad background at all. It should be maybe used in the scenario. But if that never comes out, then it was a waste of time, and it might have been better just sort of like saving your imagination for the game. So I kind of like my characters now to emerge in gameplay. The downside of that is that. If I don't put some focus into the direction I want my character to be, then they tend to all end up similar yeah. in whatever games I'm playing because they just fall into my behavioural patterns. So that's a downside. But there is there is plenty to be said for get the basics down and then let's go. And then we'll see what happens. So... It's a tricky one, mate. and again, I think a lot depends on the game. A lot depends on the system you play. Some games are just never even going to get started without a bit more meat on the bones, and other ones are never going to get started because you've got too much meat on the bones. Yeah. What about yourself? Yeah, I agree. I think there is... Um, I went through a phase, like I think a lot of people have, where you write lots of background, but if that's divorced from the other players or the GM or whatever, or you don't think to bring it out yourself or can't, you know, I've got that confidence or that relationship with the GM to make it happen, then you might as well have not done. But, you know, a good friend of ours, Baz, uh, Baz even, you're Baz, um, he, yeah. he'll write pages. Any game we play, yeah. he just turns up with like four sides of A4. You haven't asked him to, or he's not said anything, but he's like, here's on my background. Whether or not you read it as GM or other player or not, he's, he needs to have that kind of stuff set up so he knows what his character is like, which is great, but mm. you can't expect everybody to do that. And I'd much rather have some of that stuff come out and play and be part of the story rather than just mm. something that he's put all that effort into, but only he's sort of aware of or, or gets anything out of, if you know what I mean. I'm just going to say on that point, because I, I know Bez's backgrounds very well, and they're, they're awesome, absolutely awesome. I can't remember much about them now, which, <laughs> funnily enough, is... <laughs> and I never really listen to any other people when they're telling me their backgrounds. But what I was going to ask is, in con gaming and one-shots, there's this little thing you have to do with your character, which is to pitch it right at the start, don't you? Mm. You'll hand out a bunch of pre-gens, and you'll say, introduce yourself to people. And I think there's a bit of an art to the 30-second to one-minute pitch of your character. We do it every time we get together with strangers and do online gaming or whatever. And most of that stuff, I'll just improvise. 
based off a character sheet I might have only had five minutes ago. And that background is as useful as, as anything that I might have sat down and prepared for a couple of hours with, with loads of paper and copy paste and importing pictures. I can maybe go back to it and do all that kind of stuff later. But in the moment, I've come up with some decent backgrounds that have, that have come out of like thin air in 30 seconds because they're kind of like catchy and memorable. And I do listen to other people when they introduce their characters that way too. And often people will focus on physical appearance, things like that. But most of the time they'll drop in something about where they came from and, and how they sound and why they act the way they do. So I think gamers being gamers, um, improvised backgrounds ain't bad. It's just whether there's room for it on the character sheet or not, I suppose, isn't it? Whether it's a compulsory step in the system that you're using. Yeah, I think there's... Um... There's, there's several different ways. My current con games really, I just have a short paragraph or maybe two. Mm. I don't particularly like Hero Quest as a system, but one of their good things was um, their hundred word statement. So your characters, basically, skills and everything come from this one hundred words or thereabouts that you write about yourself at the start. But having that focus of a certain amount of material, but not too much, means you, you'd really just put down the the really meaty stuff about what your character's about. Mm. So having a paragraph like that on a character sheet, I think, is enough. Any more and players can get lost, or quite often they say, "Oh, is there something on the back?" Halfway through the game and haven't even noticed there was something there. Anything less, and some people can struggle. I know we're pretty fine with just giving some stats, and we'll work out for ourselves what a character's like. But you know, other people might want a bit more help. So, I think anything up to about a hundred words is uh, is fine, and then you, it relies on your system a little bit. So things like Savage Worlds, or to be fair, things like Vampire or or all the sort of games that have advantages and disadvantages or hindrances and hindrances or whatever you want to call them. If you've got something that you're particularly good at and something that you're particularly bad at or renowned for, then straight away you've got a couple of points to, to you know get your character started. And certainly for one-shots, if there's two things for every character at the table and there's five or six of them, that's plenty of stuff to be going on with for a four-hour session, isn't it? Definitely. Definitely. And, and the best thing about those systems... Um, there's lots to not like about those systems. One of the things I do like is it uses words. So your edges and your flaws have all got very, very short statements. So it just might be like tough uh, or veteran of the Wild West. And that means you can say those things out loud when you're talking to the other players about what you've got and what your character is without saying, I'm strength 17, which clearly yeah. isn't really providing much in the way of, of a narrative at that early stage, although it's equally as useful to know. <laughs> but addressing yeah. it up with a couple of words is, is is clearly a better thing to do. And, and actually, if I'm honest, sometimes when other people are telling me about a character, especially if we're playing online and I can't look across the table to a character sheet, I kind of wish they would just tell me what their advantages and disadvantages were so I could kind yeah. of get that straight in my head and, and maybe not dress it up too much and go off into something really flowery. Because I think clarity is, is really important in gaming and and, and those advantages or aspects in fate, if they're done well, can be just like that and really super helpful for me. I think a really good one is um, Hot War. It's something I forgot about, actually, the first few times I ran it, but I reread the book. And um, you, you get a certain number of traits, which are short st statements, like, you know, socially crippled or whatever it might be, scarred by the war, burned by treachery, something like that, something evocative. And you get five of them, I think it is, and then you can have a sixth one, but you have to have, um, a, like, a flashback scene so you describe a scene that happened in the past and you basically roll for a conflict. And if, if you succeed, it comes out as positive and if you fail, it comes out as negative. But you get a trait based on that scene that's happened historically in the past. 
So you yeah. start your session off with that, and then everybody knows one thing about your character's past, and then there's this, this sort of like game mechanic that hangs around afterwards that will keep coming back upwards again. You know, the character that's burned by treachery, every time he comes into a conversation with someone or someone's trying to persuade him for help or anything like that, you always know that that character is going to be shady about it because of that time when he was speaking to Major Winters back in the day mm. and he left him out there in, in the forest on his own kind of thing. So that's a really good way of tying in a bit of a game mechanic and, and giving the players that shared experience of something from everybody else's past. I think that's a really useful mm. tool. Yeah. Yeah, like that a lot. That that that's that's probably going to take us into the realms of like group character generation, which I think is kind of pretty normal these days. Uh, but but just before we get to that, just to sort of uh, build on your point there. Um, speaking of slightly obscure games, I've got a game called Warbirds, which is about uh, it's kind of a diesel punk game. It's kind of like fighter races, but in a in a in an alternate history nineteen fifties where. There are islands floating in the sky. Trust me, you'll just have to go with it. But basically, I've never heard of it. yeah, warbirds is is excellent for lots and lots of different reasons. But one of them is that you're all fighter pilots in a squadron, and on your character sheet is a space for your code name, like Maverick or Goose, stuff like yeah. that. But you don't write that down. You you can't write anything in that space until you've played your first mission, and then everybody else at the table tells you what your new name is <laughs> based on what you've done. So that means that that name then becomes like nicknames, and you never think up your own nickname, do you? It's always given to you by your mates, and that's just no. a really clever little trick of of generating background through play, like in that hot war example. That everyone will always know what your name is. You'll never have to like write out little temp cards and put them around the table and go, "Sorry, who are you again?" Because we still do that now, don't we? Yeah. It's art sometimes. So yeah, so part of the group. Generation stuff, which I'm a bit of a fan of. You a fan? Yes, definitely. I think I think you have to these days. Well, obviously you can't for a convention, but um, yeah, for home games and stuff like that. Uh, apart from anything else, is that niche protection thing where everybody wants the thing that they do well that perhaps other people don't. Or don't you don't want to create a duplicate of somebody else's character by the time you're all finished? Um, and there's if you're playing a bit more old school, you kind of want the synergy, so you've got all the bases covered. You've got someone to pick a lock and kick a door in and all the other ways persuade it to open. Um, but I think just generally for getting, getting people working together, it, it works out well. It gives you an idea about other characters, like you say. So something like the, the fake Spirit of the Century stuff was great, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Where some of your traits are actually based on things that happened with another character at some point and that sort of thing. So, I mean, even in a simple way, I think the Cypher system does it now. I think it's in New Era, probably some of the others as well. So you've got a choice of four options for most of the different professions. I can't remember the exact term is. Uh, and it's like, name of the character, and they've done this, or they've done that, or they've done the other, or someone owes you something, or someone's stolen from you, or you suspect this character of something, what is it? And it's quite a simple thing, but that way of weaving the characters together in some way, uh, I think definitely helps your group straight away. Because there's nothing more awkward I've found at conventions than getting a group of strangers together, and then they have characters who are strangers, and then saying, okay, you all know each other, how do you know each other? If it was mm. kind of us lot, we'd be fine with it. But a lot of people, certainly when they're there all individually, find it really awkward to speak to another bunch of people they don't know, don't know the style or preferences, don't know the game, don't know the characters, to then try and come up with excuses as to why this group should meld together. The kind of, a lot of the time, people just expecting you to provide a bit of an experience and some help. In that. So, um, yeah, some links between the characters or whatever, whether it's for your home game or providing yourself as GM or asking some questions. That's what I've done a couple of times on the character sheet. It's not said that, okay, Baz, um, you owe Pete something. What is it necessarily? Or mm. it'll it'll be, but or something a bit more vague than that, just to give you that sort of 
inroad to talk to the player to decide what it is. Um, and it probably helps as a GM to have your own idea about that as well. Or yeah. call for the table, you know, get the players to ask the other players around the table as well, what would this thing be? What can we do? All that kind of stuff and getting people talking really helps the game, I think. Yeah, I, I would I would struggle to go back to not doing group character generation now. Session one in any campaign is going to be for doing characters together and, and then probably doing a bit of the setting together too. And, and it's just brilliant. I mean, even if, I mean, I started a brand new D&D campaign in the last couple of weeks and everyone kind of did their characters in advance, but we still had a character generating session where everybody came along and bought their players' handbooks and the rough notes and and, we, and, and, so, and some of the players had their characters done 100%. It was all written out on pen. It wasn't going to change. But we still joined in the conversations and they could talk about what miniature they were going to use for goodness sake, which meant that they talked about their appearance and other people offered suggestions and and they were asking questions about, well, what did you do then? And so you're a druid, are you? Well, what sort of druid are you? And, and after a while, as a GM, I just sit there scribbling down a few notes. I'm kind of planning next week's adventure based off what they're saying. What I got wrong for ages was I thought that this was all like pre-game. But it's not, is it? It's the game. <laughs> yes, and and arguably, <laughs> in some fake games, it's better than the next week. Because <laughs> <laughs> I can't figure out compels. But... Um, but, but but generating those characters and, and generating all the history that you've had, that, that's gaming. And you never really use dice at that bit either. It's kind of funny, isn't it? It's like you, 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 you generate some kind of indie hippie game before you get into your whatever system it is that you use. Yeah. And, um, and I really like that. I, having said that, very occasionally I kind of like the solo fun that role-playing used to give me when I was a teenager of, of being there with me books and me, me notepad and me brother. Mm. And... Um, and, and generating stuff, whether it be characters or worlds or monsters. Uh, Traveller was always brilliant for that because it was just a series of books for you to just generate stuff from and then let your imagination spin off while you're just listening to some dodgy prog rock probably on vinyl. But, but I used to like that bit. And, I, and, I, and, and the first thing you do with any new book you get, still, you do generate a character, don't you? And yeah, do. of course you do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I, I I still enjoy all that stuff. I know some people can't really be bothered, and they'll ask me what the best advantages are or whatever because they just want to get to the end. But yeah, I think for a lot of us, certainly traveller, it was that kind of journey with your character where you go through different careers and pick up scars or you know experiences from different trips and stuff like that. It gave you a bit of a story for your character. It's that extra meat and background and get made me feel more grounded. Um, and I like it mechanically as well. Certainly the um, burning wheel type stuff we have different yeah. life paths and with that it's like quite fun picking the career that your character took and layering up these different advantages and disadvantages and skills and wises and things like that um and even uh Woof Rup, that was another of the the old sort of 90s yeah. games as well that had you started off as a rat catcher and ended up as a judicial champion or something but it was that kind of journey and, and layering of things that had happened that i think really had some depth and make it interesting and meaty rather than just mm. being a you know Another boilerplate thief or fighter or whatever. Yeah, I like picking from lists, you know, and yeah. and, um, and it, it even uh, I think probably solo character generation is is probably a bit rarer these days because it seems to be a super trad thing. There, there'll definitely be some games out there that still generate that kind of stuff. D and D fourth edition was relatively recent, I suppose, and that that needed a computer towards the end um, <laughs> to do it. But it was it was immensely fun to do, uh, and I know of people who subscribe to DDI Dungeons Dragons Insider, which I think was about four or five quid a month. It was it wasn't going to break the bank, but it wasn't a trivial amount of money either. 
just so they could get the character generator and, and poke the buttons um, and just see what happened and just print them off and and have like a, a, a folder with 20 characters in it, all first level, and do some temp level ones. And, and that was its own kind of fun. You'd have to trust me on this, but it was. It was good fun. Oh, and the scrolling, scrolling up and down feet lists. I've done, you know, like I've, I've spent time building my own Excel spreadsheets for Savage Worlds with like a drop down wow. with the different edges and stuff like that, and automatically carry, uh, calculating the parries based on different stats and all this kind of stuff, and if they've got certain edges, but. It got untenable after a while. But yeah, all that kind of fiddling about and twisting the dials and seeing what's good. Love all that. I think the only mm. disappointing bit was sometimes with these sort of games is you can find out what the best strategy is and then yep. some things just get left behind. Even though they sound cool, you don't use them because they're just not as good as some other things. So some stuff gets left on the pile. And that, that's a little bit of a shame with it. It's, it's good to fiddle around, but I do sort of feel a little bit of regret when it means that some people will take it to the nth degree rather than pick something because it's fun or interesting or sounds cool. But, you know. Well, I, I think the poster child for that, mate, is, uh, I think you agree with me on this, we've discussed it before, is feats as an idea is really, really cool because they're just advantages. Having something called improved initiative, it just totally shoots the legs <laughs> out from underneath it because it's the dullest <laughs> thing ever. To get a decent feat, which could be like uh, a toughest guy in the world, and then level it up with, I'm... Improved. Improved. Oh, man, really? I had to wait six levels to add the word improved to it. You couldn't think of more narration than that. That's that's not good. And, and that really does feel like then maybe it's a callback to the plus one sword and the plus two sword and the plus three sword. But they were that was the least interesting bit about the magic item. So yeah. Why put that on your character sheet as well? Awful. Yeah, absolutely. And I think another sort of like uh, gotcha, if you will, I think it was sort of D&D third, was you had feats in that when you could do stuff. We seemed okay, but the trouble is that it then uh, sort of precludes other people from having them. So I think we played like a mm-hmm. a slain version or something like that, and I want you to kind of run down uh, the the thing on a chariot that goes between the two horses. There's like the yeah, what it's called, like the prow or whatever that's done. Yeah, that sort of thing. So I wanted to run along that beam in the middle and dive off and hit someone with my axe, kind of thing. And the GM was like, "Oh, sorry, you can't do that. It's a feat to do that, and you haven't got that feat." Yeah. You know, obviously, in another world with a different Jemmy, oh yeah, fine, do it. It's this difficulty, yeah. roll your dice, kind of thing. But just having that in the rules, saying that that's going to be a feat to do that kind of thing, then means that other people can't do it. Or if mm. someone's got the feat and you let someone else do it when they haven't got it, they're kind of like, well, why? Why did I bother buying this thing? Because it's useless. That's right. So, okay. so I think you've got to you've got to look at your system a little bit as well and work out if. If your feats are based on stopping other people doing them, it's like are, are they the right thing to have? Mm. If it's it makes you easier to do something, then that's that's probably fine. So, in Deadlands, for example, there's there's uh, edges around fanning the hammer where you just hold the trigger down mm-hmm. and fan the hammer back and blast away. Anyone can do it, but if you put some points into a special edge, it means it's a lot easier for you. You have more chance of hitting and all the rest of it. So then it becomes. Not that you're not allowing anybody else to fan the hammer, because everybody's in a western where someone does that and might want to try it. But if someone dedicates time and points to it, then they're good at it. So mm. I think that's a better way of doing it. Uh, but you know, different systems have different ways of handling that kind of stuff. Yeah, uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics does something very similar. It because it doesn't use feats, uh, but it but it but it does. So what it what it does with warriors, <laughs> which is the new name for fighters, is they have a deeds dice, and when you max on your rolling your deed dice, you can declare a mighty deed that you've just pulled off. In fact, I think you have to declare it in advance. 
but that's it. It's a generic term, which and, and, and the table would say, oh, cool, what do you do then? Because you basically critical your attack as a fighter. And at that point, the player will go, uh, okay, and they'll, they'll think up some kind of advantage that they've just got off of that attack. And in doing so, you've just stripped away the need for 20 feats for tripping people or disarming people or pushing them back or or pulling a cloak over their head or giving them a wedgie <laughs> and <laughs> just by putting the, the power in the player's hands to say you've rolled well enough to get something cool out of this narrate it yeah. and that's that's great yeah. that, make, that makes a lot of sense because people want to do cool stuff in games but i think i think we probably again we probably run the risk of agreeing with each other here i don't like it when people look at character sheets as a list of permissions yeah I kind I kind of want the character sheet to to be there as a fallback for have you got the dice to back that up rather than this is all you're allowed to do because that's got to be limiting. Yeah, I think you're right. I don't know. I mean, you will always get a player. I, th- I think we've all experienced it at, at tables where you ask a player what they want to do and the head goes down. And they start reading the character sheet to look for inspiration. Yeah. But it'd be nice to try and encourage people to just kind of like, well, think about what you actually want to do in that situation, and then we'll work out all the the numbers afterwards. But You've kind of got to balance that if you don't know the system, I guess, because you don't know what's achievable. Mm-hmm. Um, but as long as you've got those basics sorted out, I think we want to encourage more just going for it. But, yeah, I think part of that, it's, it's, it's easier in a home game, isn't it? Because part of your character generation is going to be like, well, I want to be able to do X, Y, and Z, so I'm going to pick the things that let me do that best. Mm-hmm. So that's a lot easier to do. Um, I don't know, what sort yeah. of the systems have we got? I mean, I, we've talked about like the, the just a random role and Traveller and life paths from burning wheel and that kind of stuff fate integrates things around as well but are there others like what do you think to the sort of idea where you like for example take it it's going a bit old school again but you roll randomly for six stats and then you assign Mm. them how you want or is there a system where you roll for your stats and if you get bad ones you get some extra points to spend somewhere else or how where do you stand on kind of like rolling for stuff compared to points by i guess is where we're going with that one well, it's, it, that's the big dichotomy that was presented to us, wasn't it, back in the day? And that's where GURPS comes from, because that's a points-by system. And it's all all a reaction to D&D not being a points-by system. And D&D has never really been one. Even when it's put points-by into its stat array, the rest of the game is class and race and level. And, and you're, not, you're not buying those and balancing them against each other. There's a whole sort of stuff underneath the system. And immediately that that came out, people wanted to have more control over what they did as a character. And you still see people doing it now. And it's really important to an awful lot of people that they have a concept in their head that they can then get down on a bit of paper. And and dice rolls shouldn't stop that happening. And and I have a huge sympathy for that. I really do. I, I actually get more imagination out of sometimes having a bit of randomness in the process. So it gets me neurons firing a little bit. I'm, I'm just not clever enough to come to a game and know exactly what I want in advance. But mm. plenty of people do. Now, the only the only thing that I sort of grind my teeth at a little bit with that is because it's points by you just cannot help but try to seek to le- leverage that system to make yourself, in scare quotes, good at it. Yeah. And I suppose that's min maxing, and 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 that's. And I don't, I don't have any sort of huge philosophical agenda with that at all, because actually the sort of players who do that tend to be super engaged, maybe in a different kind of way to the way that I would want to be engaged, but at least they're engaged. <laughs> they're bothered enough to try and get something out of it. But you can't help but go down that route in a points by system. And arguably, if you don't do a bit of that, you're kind of letting yourself and everybody else down. 
or, yeah. or is that maybe taking it too far? I don't know. But even in Call of Cthulhu, you've got skills points to spend. There's there's a, got to be a strategy to that rather than just sort of like dropping them all over your character sheet and writing down numbers <laughs> next to where the dice land. That'd be an interesting way to play. And if there's going to be a strategy, then you've got to play to win? Or is that just me? Well, it's like there's all kinds of stories we've got on the back of that thing. One, Bez, who we mentioned before <laughs> previously, we rolled up some, we say rolled up, we made some Call of Cthulhu characters, and he was determined that his character should be an artist. And he was trying to, like, he's asking me for more points so he could put them in art. And unfortunately, <laughs> Cthulhu is one of those games where you might have to use art to, 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 like, to, to do stuff. So I didn't want to just give him free points. So I said, well, not really. You know, I could probably give you a basic amount to. Um, so we kind of went with it in the end. So it turned out with like he decided the character was a rubbish artist. So that's where we went with it. So a little bit of story came out of it that there was just you know this frustrated artist. He was just shit at doing that, but it was determined that that was his future kind of thing and made a dilettante, thing. <laughs> which was an unexpected side effect of, the, of sticking to one sort of system. But um, I, I don't know. I think there was an element to. If you just take some random stats, I do like that kind of approach of layering up things. So if you were a cop, then you'll get some investigation and some probably yeah. unarmed combat and some of the bits like that, those kind of things to give you the basics of. So if you've got an idea, you get the basics in it and then you get some free points to spend elsewhere. I think Cthulhu's done that quite a few times in its iterations. Uh, Slay. Slay does that with skill packages, I think, yes. famously, doesn't it? That's nice. And an interesting one I've seen recently, I just saw a photograph of it on G+, so I don't know whether it's a, an official pack or something else. It was for Fate Accelerated, where you've got the seven different attributes, I can't remember what they are, but they're like they're being a sneaky one and a, being a witty one and all the rest of it. Six approaches. That's it, the approaches. Uh, and so there's just a bunch of cards with like plus ones and plus twos on them for various approaches, or, or greyed out if you didn't get anything in that one. And I think each character had two or three of those cards and then just stacked them in front of them, and that'll give them their different numbers and their approaches. So it's, you know, a cop or, you know, alcoholic or whatever, just a bunch of different things like that, and you just grab three cards and stick them together, and that gives you numbers on the sheet. Yeah, that's a really good pick-up-and-play worker. So I like that kind of easy-to-use packages. Um, But equally, I like the free points. I like to be able to fiddle with it. Like I said, I think you need to tinker. You can't just rely on, I don't know, it's kind of uh, like the one ring, take something like that, for example. Really good system in many ways. Uh, one of the things that used to frustrate, I'll use Bez again, so he's not here and can't defend himself, but <laughs> you get cultural weapons, and he kind of, he wanted an elf, but wanted to use a spear, and they always come with a sword, or vice versa, I can't remember which round it is. But, you know, obviously, as, as we play as mature players, I said, yes, yeah, just swap it, it's fine, it doesn't matter. But playing by the letter of the law, it would have been, well, no, you have to have the sword then, even though he said he should have had a spear kind of thing. And it's, yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I think there needs to be a little bit of flexibility in it as well. Or, I mean, you could do all that at the table, but it's just that kind of thing where if you're a little bit stuck on canon, as, as me and Bears and others tend to be, then you kind of want to do it properly in inverted commas. Um, you don't want to have to just blag it and say, oh, we'll pretend it's something else. You kind of want to try and use it properly, but that that's just a, a rob we've made for our own back. I don't I advocate anybody else sticks wholeheartedly to it to where you do something, just because the book tells you to, but yeah, it's that golden yeah. rule, I think, isn't it, with all role-playing games. They used to write it in the front of some, if you don't like something, change it. It's your game. Yeah, but I don't change things <laughs> because then what was the point in paying for the stuff? Well, I do change things. That's not not entirely true, but I do. I love to play rules as written first of all, and that which, which brings us back to the first thing I do with any new game is generate a character. I generate a character using the rules I've just bought. Yes, because <laughs> why wouldn't I? why wouldn't I? And, <laughs> and I, I do like doing 
reskinning, I think that's kind of cool. I, th I think it's a fair point in the One Ring if you've got those cultural weapons. That makes a lot of sense. But like in D and D of a certain vintage, your your wizards or your clerics couldn't use certain weapons for for reasons. But reskinning stuff made a lot of sense. And and definitely uh, Savage Worlds with uh, like its blast power, you've got to put trappings around that yourself, which is which is ultimately it's reskinning, isn't it? And if you yeah. if you're dull enough to just say I blast it for three power points, you're probably not going to play in Gaz's game for more than the next few minutes. So you know, <laughs> wake up and smell the narration. Um, so yeah, I, I like doing that. Oh, oh, just just to finish up on that, I think yeah, that's right. It's one of the things I found a little bit probably because I'm used to playing a lot of Savage now, but I found a bit irritating about the new D and D that I got a bunch of spells, um, and we we're only low level characters, but three of them were essentially the same. And one was kind of like did a D6 plus one, but it was frost damage. And one did a D8, but it was fire damage. And one did whatever it was, D4 plus two, but it was electricity damage or something. And within the game, it makes a difference, you know, for certain types of creatures can be affected by some or invulnerable to others or whatever else. But to my mind, I was just thinking, why don't I just have the bolt power and then describe how it yeah. looks myself kind of thing, you know. Yeah. So it comes down to whether you like the fiddliness of it or, or more dials and knobs and different options or whether you just want a broad mechanical effect effect and then you apply the colourful stuff yourself I guess. Well that, that, that's, a, that's an interesting call because clearly an awful lot of thought and play tests has gone into the decisions of D&D 5th edition. It, it, it's As with a lot of things it, it kind of helps my thinking when I look at the design process behind D&D 5 because cleverer people than me have done it. I don't agree with all the decisions they've made but it helps to understand why. And there's definitely, there's something about spell lists and it goes across every game because it doesn't have to be a spell list. It could be an equipment list or a superpower list or whatever. But but players and gamers like lists and they like shopping. Yeah. And there are loads of really, really cool games. I think as a, as a GM, I really like those kind of um, under the hood systems where you can kind of, uh, you can have a broad power like you've just suggested, but then put all of your flavor into it yourself. I like slim books as a GM, but as a player, I like having lists of stuff to choose from. It's really freaky yeah. and weird. And, and I, I think a really good example of that would be like Apocalypse World, where you get playbooks and stuff like that. I think the GM in me loves the idea of it being quite simple and straightforward and 2D6 plus a modifier, and there's a couple of basic questions to answer, and, and there's a lot to love about that kind of game. As a player, it doesn't feel satisfying enough to just make stuff up and then look down to my character sheet when stuff happens. I, I kind of want the drop-down menu that I've been bemoaning <laughs> until this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think um, I'm, I'm sort of warming as well to asymmetrical set, uh, systems. So Definitely, yeah. Still not quite there on the side for myself, but uh, yeah, I'm getting more into it. I'm warming it. It's a bit simple for me, I think, but I like the fact there's just a really simple GM element to it. Uh, mm. And you attack mm. a player character, and the player rolls a defense roll. You don't roll any attack dice or anything like that. Uh, so that puts all your mechanical widgets and all the up and down of steps and all that on the players, because they've only got one character to worry about, and you've got all the rest. But your side mm. of the screen is quite easy to manage from that point of view. So I think that's it. That's a good way forward. But um, that's that's another one where I, I fancy running for a convention, but then I get to the character generation bit, and that's where I have to pause. Because there are lots of lists, and it's all quite cool. If you're making a character that you're going to play, yeah. or perhaps two characters, if you're having to put six together and make them all different and interesting, actually, is a, a 
speaking of myself as a GM for what might only be a one-shot game we never play again, it's quite a lot of investment going through all those lists to try and put it all together and make them all sufficiently different and interesting and cool. Yeah. It'd be nice if there was an easier way of doing that, I think. Which is which may be why, you know, the the D and D idea of having that kind of online tool with a subscription might be a way forward. You know, if someone can come up with ideas like that that you pay a, a small amount of money for. I pay forty quid for books that I barely read. I'd happily True. pay, you know, ten or twenty quid for an app where I could just press a button and make loads of random characters and print them off. That'd be awesome. There might even yeah. be one out there, I've just not seen it yet. Uh, there, there is for a lot of games. There is uh, for Dungeon Crawl Classics. Again, I mentioned a few times now, but there's some really good third-party apps that cost no money whatsoever that can generate you six peasants on a single sheet of paper, um, or you can level them up or whatever, because you can just get stuck into it. And, and why wouldn't you? I think, I think an interesting way to look at this might be whatever happened to pre-gens in books, are they still a thing? Because for a while, they were a big thing. I had Torg of all games, and one of the really cool things about Torg was it had about 50 pre-generated characters in it. It had absolutely loads of them, from uh, from werewolves to sort of uh, Supergirls to, to Indiana Jones pulp guys, and they were all completely statted out, barring I think name um, and some of the kind of the basic details like your sex and your height and your weight and stuff like that. And there was there was room for you to put your personality into it. But it had all the numbers done for you and a cool little picture. And they were all like, I don't know, I think they might have been four to a page in a big size book. But I remember photocopying them and having like at least 50 pre-gen characters on hand ready to go. And they, they could be used as NPCs as well. Or just as a starter for 10. Because, yeah, you, I think you're right, mate. It's um, There's lots of games these days where our lonely fun of generating a character has actually become a bit of homework because we've got to generate six for a con. Yeah. And that's hard in any game, even in games you love. Yeah. yeah. So, some, but do games even give you pre-gens these days? Some do. You still get them sometimes. Um, tends to be the more old-school ones. Or I guess, you know, you've mentioned Apocalypse World, but those kind of world games to have the playbooks, which have basically got the characters there, haven't they? True. So for people who don't know, you basically get a little fold-up sheet. So it's a five or a four size possibly but you can fold it up into three pieces basically there's a picture on the front and they just pick up some boxes and it'll give you five or six descriptors so you underline one or two and it'll give mm. you five or six things that are about your appearance so you underline a couple of them and you put some dots in a couple of boxes to give you your stats of plus ones or plus two or a minus one or something uh, and you're done really quickly in five minutes you can have a, a character assembled you've got some nice little names and details and bits and pieces on that and some special moves that apply just to your character mm. so there is that kind of you can't duplicate them can you no. That, that's one of the cool things is you can't have two druids yeah where it gets a little bit sad is the kind of experience system gets to the point where you can you level up in inverted commas to kind of pick something off someone else's playbook and that's mm. where I think it gets a little bit dull because somebody picks the best one or you start duplicating things then so you've got a unique player who, who's the only one who has these abilities and then someone else picks talk to animals as well and it suddenly doesn't become as cool anymore but that's that's kind of we're drifting into experience levels and stuff like that rather than the character gen stuff now. Okay, so let me bring you back to character gen a little bit then. I'm going to throw something out there which is um, controversial, but I genuinely believe this. I think role-playing went wrong when it brought skills into the game. (laughs) In every sense. And that's because character generation suddenly became hard. Character sheets became something you had to print off rather than put in your notebook. It's, it, I, I 
I've never been a fan of skills in role-playing games, so I've been kind of dissatisfied for a very, very long time now because it was probably the, the first thing invented when Steve Perrin picked up his original D&D and made RuneQuest. And it's a, it's a bit late in the day to be ranting about, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody said the horse is bolting. I think probably, mate, and we ain't going to put that genie back in the bottle, perhaps. But, oh, man, I don't like them. And and if I've got to have them at all, I want a list of no more than 15. So I like my broader stuff rather than my detailed stuff. And nothing makes my heart sink more than really cool games like Blue Planet having the biochemistry written on the sheet. I, I don't care if you think I'm going to use it. I'm not. And it doesn't matter whether I've got two in it or eight in it or 12 in it. It's rubbish. And it stopped me just being a cool character. Go on, defend skills. I think you love them, don't you, Deviant? I really like skills, yeah. I like it. It appeals to the this kind of, like the idea in some games where, for example, only the thief can pick a lock or that kind of thing. That that was weird. Correct. So like Correct. D&D had, yeah, had skills for certain characters and not others. That was even more bizarre. Um, no, I, I like them because apart from innate ability, there's some learned ability, so it depends on what you do there. Blue Planet is a, is a baddie for many reasons, mm. as much as I like the setting and stuff. Uh, one of the problems was that it has too many similar skills. So you didn't just yeah. have Persuade, you had Charm and Etiquette and Bribery or some, something of those sort. Of, I can't remember the exact skills, but it was something like that. So I remember playing a con game at one point and I wanted to, for example, pay this guy some money to let us through the security gate or whatever it was. Uh, and I wasn't allowed to because I didn't have the bribery skill. And I had the other three all at really high levels, but because I didn't have that one skill... I couldn't charm him with persuading because money was involved. I had to bribe him and then wasn't allowed. Or I only rolled like one die when I should have rolled three and that. So that kind of stuff with skills is obviously bollocks. No one's going to defend that. And I, I feel the same sort of way about Cthulhu in those sort of games. When you were told you had to have botany rather than biology or something like that, it just gets a little bit... Oh, really? Why are we spending points on these things that may or may not come up and don't care most of the time compared to grappling or something which will come up all the time yeah. um but the, i mean there were, were systems that had things around it for example so um i think it was cyberpunk or was it shadowrun maybe um one of those sort of games which had like a skill matrix so shadowrun, shadowrun yeah shadowrun yeah and if you had similar type of skills you could still make the role but you got the further you went away from the core skill the more difficult it was going to be that kind of thing so that kind of helped mitigate it a little bit, although you did end up with this web of nodes on your page. But it did look quite sort of cyberpunk in the near future, so mm-hmm. you fit with the theme. But you did have a little side sheet you had to track through to work out what number you need to roll on your, your persuade or whatever it was. But yeah, I, I don't think you can just put everything down to innate skills. You do need, or innate abilities, you need some kind of skill on top for what you've learned and gained. Now that could just be a set of traits, or it could be some bonuses in certain areas or whatever else. Or I think the Numenera way of doing it is if you are skilled, then you get a bonus to it, is it? I think Wolfrook was the same, wasn't it? If you were skilled at whatever it was, mm-hmm. wagon riding, you got plus 10 in that, and that that was fine. You just rolled your normal dice. No, skills are good. But I think you're right. I agree with your criticism that games that have too many, I'm looking at you, Rollmaster, when they started including skills like surfing and skiing, it was like oh, someone had really lost the plot. Talk about jumping the shark. They're trying to surf over it. <laughs> Ridiculous. Man, so, uh, I think I've, I've met. I have met some resistance with things like uh, Savage Worlds, for example, has got fighting and shooting. Now, I think mm-hmm. it's good in some ways. The argument against it is, if you want to punch someone in the face or hit them with a 
broadsword or hit them with a crowbar or something like that. They're all different ways of doing things and different skills, and you shouldn't know how to do them equally. Mm-hmm. But my approach would be, if you're good at fighting, you're good at fighting. That's what you're good at. In this story, you're going to fight a lot. Just put it all under one skill. That's perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. Why bother fanning about too much? And I have met over the years a lot of resistance to that idea from people who are trying to make games too realistic. So they will say, well, you know, botany is different than biology. You know, they are different subjects. You know, I'm a, I'm a biology teacher, but you know, my botany skills are a bit ropey. But that's not what you want actually in the session, is it? I think the thing to keep in mind is what are you going to be doing in that game? And what matters there? Not really how realistic is your game, especially if you summer in Shubnigaroth or you have dragons wandering around the place. You can't really get too hung up on what your skills say and what they actually cover. So I like, I like the divide between innate ability and learn skill, but they could be mechanically the same thing and just pop points in different chunks or however you want to do it, but I don't think everything just comes down to... I like being able to fine-tune stuff. It's that min-maxing sort of stuff you were about earlier where people want to pull gears and turn levers. Like, I want to be good mm. at fighting, I want to be really good at fighting or you know, and put the extra points in. But that can come down to into lowering target numbers if you're in the right class or something like that. It doesn't have to be skills. I think skills just make sense to people. Well, they do, yeah. Uh, I see it as a list of permissions, which kind of gets my back up a little bit. Uh, and I'll, I'll go, I think Savage Worlds has got a really good skill list, by the way. That that fits my comfort zone of length and breadth. I think it's, it's spot on. Um, and, and it could be altered depending on the genre that you're playing. So your fighting example, I think, is a good one because depending on the on the genre, if you were doing so Quentin Tarantino films, you might split that up a little bit and you might take away some of the other skills because they just probably wouldn't get an appearance. But you would definitely take something else away. You wouldn't just have a skill list that was 30, 40 long because that's part of the game is to keep it to a level. So I like that. But but skills are there for the realists of the world. And I I don't really like much realism in my fantasy gaming. I like it to be pretendy. And it comes down to, if you've got a character concept in your head and you want it to be represented in the game, then a, a game with, with lots of granular skills is going to appeal to you because you can then paint in your character on that sheet by dropping numbers here and there. Uh, you know, it's it's amazing how many people play D&D and bemoan the fact that you can't put any skill points into blacksmithing these days, whereas I'd be quite happy to just write <laughs> blacksmith on my sheet. It's a big deal for folk. In third edition, there was craft skills and brewing and all of that kind of stuff, which people felt they needed, some people felt they needed to have in numerical form on the sheet. Otherwise, it didn't happen for their character and they didn't feel well rounded enough. Um, yeah, a little bit. It's, and it's just preferences. I do get it. I do get it. But I don't see why those particular players can't just write in their background lines, which probably doesn't have a lot of space, but like dead good at brewing, or well-known brewer Thoric the Dwarf, instead of my character sheet then having to have loads and loads of little extra lines with tiny little words on them and check boxes and stuff, which I never fill in. Um, I, I, I don't know. But there's that. So I, I get where that comes from. I would just... I think the, 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 the corollary, I can't even say that word, to this discussion, though, is... I like my character sheets to be pretty. I think character sheets are a real art, and it's a real sell-me for a game as to whether they look nice or don't look nice. And I think, generally speaking, character sheets that have two-thirds of it covered in like telephone book skill lists don't look pretty. And it might be just a simple visual like that that puts me off it. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I know where you're coming from. I think that there's different ways you can you can carve up. You don't have to call them skills. You can get uh, bonuses for flares or <laughs> call it all you want. Flares. I mean, I mean, Elan in a certain <laughs> area, not airline flares. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think it's, I like the sort of like savage idea. Of if you're good at fighting or shooting, for example, I kind of want to do a time splitters two thing, or a you know, you go to different time zones, and one week you're a samurai shooting an arrow from a bow, and another one you're on a spaceship shooting a laser pistol. But it just gives you shooting skill because you're good at shooting stuff. That's what your character's known for. It's one of those kind of divining traits. But it could just as easily be a trait called you know, dead eye shot in in fate or something like that, without the need for a specific skill necessarily. Although fate does have its skills as well, which are as important, if not more so than the aspects, I would argue, but that's a different topic altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, skills, I don't know, take, take them William, I guess. I do, I do like them. Um, I like in Unknown Armies, I think we, I don't know if we mentioned it in a, the Unknown mm-hmm. Armies episode, but that they have a penumbra, so it's not just a skill yeah. in and of itself. So when something's quite broad, you can just roll against the stat that governs it, which is normally a high number. If it's under more stress, you roll the actual skill that you have to get. Um, and if you've got whatever it is, a skill in history or botany or whatever. You also know about museums and other professors and know about that kind of stuff. And it kind of develops a bit more rather than just a raw number of sheet as to whether you know about flowers or not, I guess. I don't think I'll convince you on it, but... No, I, I quite like self-defined skills, which I think you're suggesting there, like, uh, like where you, you basically write it yourself. Uh, yeah. And, and if you want to have brewing, you've got like 20 points to spend on stuff. And if you want to put five points into brewing, you write down brewing on one of the sheets and you put five points next to it. And you probably want to fluff that up a little bit more and put what sort of brewer you are and what kind of uh, how much fame goes into it. And then it is a nice wide skill, but it's something that only you've got and you didn't pick it from the skill list. I don't mind that. In fact, I encourage that. I think that's good. It, it, I said it was weird, though. One of, my, one of my fave games for character generation, if not for much else, is the old White Wolf games. I mean, and they've got skills, but there's something nice about colouring in dots. Oh, that's yeah. really good. That's that's, that's a real pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's a game which does exactly what you've suggested, isn't it? That, that you like about having an innate ability, and then you put some more stuff on the top with something that you've learned. So you yeah. might get three dots over there and a, and a dot from that or two dots from that. Filling in those sheets was that's not particularly laborious either. I mean, Vampire and Werewolf are kind of famous for purple prose, but the engine underneath it is is actually quite slick, isn't it? I, I kind of like the level that it's on on the big grade from nothing to everything. I think it's quite nicely pitched. Yeah, it's it's, it's a decent system. It's just a shame it wasn't supporting the sort of stories they claim to want to tell. But that's Correct. that's a different issue. I had a different issue, but yeah, definitely that, that sort of dot because it made it easy to see what you were good at at a glance as well. And it, there was mm. no difficult maths involved. You just picked a dice up for every dot you had, and that that was quite simple. Mm. Uh, and especially like the way they do it with the new world of darkness, in that you create an immortal character with a certain number of dots, and then if you wanted to go on and be a vampire or whatever, or you got turned into one. You got another set of dots to kind of stuck on the top of it and and layer it all that way. That was pretty good. Uh, they didn't really get the advantages and disadvantages right, if I recall. Uh, particularly, no. it's, 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 a, it's an old favourite, but uh, a good friend of mine from back home, Dom, he always picked Dark Fate, which was worth about five points. You could get an extra dotting strength or something like that out of it. Uh, but it meant you do, you're just doomed to die ignominiously on your own in shame and horror and all the rest of it. That was what was going to happen to your character if you picked Dark Fate. And every time it happened, he'd cry. He didn't like it. He tried to weasel out of it or mitigate <laughs> it or say, 
make up some excuses about what he really thought of. He's like, no, you picked Dark Fate, Dom. You're just going to die horrible. And it really wasn't worth it. But we couldn't... I blame the system, really, for not letting us... You know, we... Once he'd seen yeah. it, he couldn't be unseen, and we couldn't take it off him, and he insisted on taking it, even though he wouldn't learn the same lesson that we keep, kept trying to teach him. But um, I, I like more... I'm going to bang on about Savage a bit more again, because that's my favourite, but... That has a disadvantages, but they're more about getting used and being interested in the story quite a lot of the time, or mm-hmm. modelling certain modes of play. They're a bit weird in that some have some mechanical effect and others don't. But I like the fact that really you pick three disadvantages. If you pick a Savage Wells character, there's a major and two minor, and nobody picks less than that because you get more cool shit if you pick them all. Yep, And they're all generally interesting or lead to a mode of play in the game. And I think that's what you want from your disadvantages. This shouldn't be just a way of getting an extra dot in strength. You want them to be adding something to the experience that you then have as a game afterwards. My poster child for crap disadvantages, as in crap because they're pointless. I'm using all the wrong words here because they weren't pointless and they weren't a disadvantage. Sterile. Do you remember that one? I think from Slay. It's in Slay Industries, yeah. You can't have any children. Yeah. And, and, and interesting that you get contraception in your basic equipment packages too. <laughs> so I kind of like how that worked. <laughs> that was good. But so cost saving for Mr. Slay. Because <laughs> God love my players, mate. Maybe I just don't have them more invested in like real stories or whatever. But I cannot imagine procreation and families coming into any game I play ever. And definitely not in Slay, of all games. <laughs> it's, it's not exactly about family dynasties, is it? So sterile was actually no disadvantage whatsoever. And, and that's just one of many, isn't it? We started this whole podcast with Paraplegic, which is a World of Darkness one, a legit yeah. World of Darkness one. Yeah. <laughs> and you go fly with no <laughs> arms or legs or head. Blind is, yeah, it's not much of a drawback at all. <laughs> yeah. It's all that balancing, mate. It's just weird. But but equally, it could be fun too. I'd, what I'd like is to see um, random charts to roll on for all of those things. Then you've got to make do with what you get. <laughs> that would yeah. be hilarious. Well, a, a sort of cool one, but could screw you over. So it's whether you like that old rolling up your stats thing or not. But in the games like Hell on Earth and uh, the Weird West, all that kind of stuff, Deadlands, there was a veteran of the Wasted West or Wild West or which, whichever one it happened to be. Uh, and you got you got basically a level up. You got to seasons. So you got four more advances, but you had to roll on this table, and something really bad happened to you. You, you didn't know what it was going to be till you rolled. Yeah. So uh, it it was it was kind of fun, but it did lead to some sulky players when they they picked their character that was ambidextrous and two fisted against two six shooters, and then they got one armed on the table for veteran of the week's rest. So, <laughs> so it, could, it could screw things up, but you know it's like dying as a character in Traveller and all those kind of apocryphal stories. Yeah, I, I'd always take those. Always take those. That those those disadvantages aren't disadvantages. They're interesting points in the game, mm. definitely. And I, I'm just not that precious about characters anymore. Where I want to be playing them five years from today. So I, I want it to have a big, iconic things that I could shout about when I have to introduce my character and everybody knows about it. And we'll probably only play six or eight sessions of anything these days, wouldn't we? Before we move on to something else. So. Who cares? That's why Sterile is weak and actually Veteran of the Wasted West and you, you've got like one good leg and you're blind in one eye is, is a cool thing because it just is. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think the only other bit I've got as we I'm looking at the time and we're probably getting on um, is Amber, the Diceless role-playing game which is the other one I wanted to mention because that had a bidding good war call. at the start. Yeah. So it's a Diceless game uh, and how it 
essentially worked is you had an auction. You started off by picking one of the four stats. I can't remember which one it was. It's either Warfare or Psych or something like that. And you as GM, was, your role was to tell me that it's the most important thing in the world and you should definitely get it. And everybody has 100 points and they start bidding on it to see who gets to be the best at that. And if you win the bidding war, you are the best in that game out of the player character group and you'll never be beaten. You're always the best at that thing ever. And as soon as that one's over, you move on to the second stat and tell everybody that that's the most important stat in the world and everybody needs to bid for that. Um, so it led to an, an interesting experience several times where we made these characters and ideally in a world where you had four players, one would be best at one of each and then everybody would be happy. But inevitably, as soon as you get gambling or bidding or betting in front of players, they want to outdo each other. And you end up with some sulky people because they weren't best at anything and someone who's tried to be best at two things. And I don't know. It didn't work for me. Maybe it works somewhere else. But I like the idea of if you're going to do points by, you kind of like put some stakes behind it. I never really saw it come out the way I wanted it to. But rather than everybody's got some points and they're just isolated to their character, I suppose the other thing that I saw in... Uh, it was a World of Darkness one. Was it a vampire? One of the source books? For that I can't quite remember. But they had some... Uh, like advantages and stuff like that that you could put points into as a group so you didn't oh, yeah. have the players against each other that's where they could sort of pool the resources to buy a base basically if they wanted a you know a sewer or wherever it was maybe a mansion or something they'd pick a place and they'd pick defenses and did it have an armory and what the security upgrades and did they have any servants or whatever and getting characters to take points away from their individual and put it into a group activity or something they all shared I think that was quite useful and, and in that environment in contrast to amber people were generally more generous they'd probably underpower mm. the characters if anything to try and come up with a good solid group idea which helps overall i think yeah th- those are interesting i never got games of amber going either mate. you kind of had to have the same people show up every week as well otherwise that original bidding war just fell flat on his bum didn't it yeah you absolutely. couldn't introduce a new player ever you couldn't <laughs> if johnny couldn't make it that week alice couldn't get a game weird Right, so, um, well, mate, let's wrap this up because we're getting to the end of our, our podcast generation hour. So, what, what do you fancy? Should we, should we shoot for our individual favourite char gems? I've got one in mind, which is a bit Go odd. Hit, you, hit me with yeah? yours, then. All right, it's um, favourite's perhaps a difficult word, but it's definitely unique. I, I haven't seen it used much in other games. Hopefully, our listeners have put us right. So, favourite charge gen comes from a game called Cyber Generation. Yep, there ain't going to be many people out there. (laughs) (laughs) I remember they're looking at the outside of the book. I don't think I read the inside. So, Cyber Generation was a sequel, for want of a better term, to Cyberpunk 2020. Cyberpunk 2020 being the original Art Alsorian game of Cyberpunk, William Gibson-style stuff, which was set in Night City, and it was all about pink mohawks and cool motorbikes and hacking and... It's become loads of things since, not least of which is the brilliant card game Nirvana. So anyway, that's Cyberpunk. Cyber Generation was to that what stuff like um, you see in comics all the time. It's like the children of that generation. So imagine you've got Cyberpunk guys, and then 15, 20 years later, you've got their teenage offspring. And the future technology has moved forward a little bit so that the cyber stuff has kind of gone behind. And now we're into nanotech and morphing and, uh, and wireless technology. Because this was all written in the 90s, don't forget. Yeah, so yeah. it's just like, it's the next generation, literally. And then the setting is about how these kids, uh, the kids of the cyberpunks, um, are almost in concentration camps because of reasons. 
and their powers aren't necessarily just technology that they've grafted onto themselves. They're kind of internal, like nanotech stuff and viruses and that kind of thing. So their their abilities are more like mutant superpowers. Now you can either love or hate that setting. That doesn't matter. The character generation is the bit that I want to talk about. The character generation starts you off with a blank character sheet on which you, you put your name, I think, and maybe your sex, and maybe your age is rolled, and it's something like 6 plus D10. So you can have a 7-year-old or a 17-year-old, 16-year-old even. It's, it's some kind of thing like that. And there's nothing else on your sheet. And then you start playing. And the GM takes you through character generation as an adventure. So that's the first session, is when you all start off, I think, in a camp. And you basically break out of it. And that gives you your attributes as you play it. So if you try to be sneaky, you get more points in stealth. And if you punch somebody, if you're the first person in the party to punch someone, you get the six in strength. And the next person to it gets the four in strength and so on. So by the time you bust out and you've done your first couple of scenes, you've got your attributes. And then you're in a chase across the city and that generates your skills depending on the picks that you take. And it's a little bit fighting fantasy. And then you end up in a pizza shop but on the menu is a bunch of under-the-counter black market weaponry, which you buy with the money that you got from previously. So over the course of a three or four hour game, you've all generated your characters and you're ready to go and then do the things you want to. Now, I think this game came out early 90s. So everything I've just said probably doesn't sound that innovative now. But to see that packaged up together in that game then, I thought it was brilliant. Mm. And... Um, and it's, a, it's, it's not something you see that often. You'll often see things where it says, like, oh, let's play Fate, but we'll only fill in half the aspects, and the other ones we'll do during the game. But that doesn't really give you the freedom, or, or any structure, I should say, to, to end up with a fully formed character at the end of it. But this one forced you to fill in boxes. You all, as a table, had to make choices of who was going to be at the back of the, the pack when you're running away from the drones chasing you down the street. And the person who chose to be at the back was the one who had the slowest speed. And that's just clever. It's yeah. a little bit like Amber, but you get numbers. Yeah. So that was my favourite. And it's it's exotic, I appreciate, but a good one, I thought. Yeah, I suppose not to be boring, I've got to pick something different than I've already mentioned. Um, so I'm going to go with the one-roll engine stuff. So I'm Ooh. talking stuff like Godlike or Wild Talents or all that kind of stuff. Um, so I like for several reasons. Um Mainly because you can have like cafeteria powers or a la carte. I can't remember what the exact term is now, but you can pick stuff for your character. Uh, and then you've got that kind of advantage and disadvantage thing and all the rest of it goes on. So basically in those sort of games, you're some kind of super-powered hero or a talent or whatever they call it in each one. Uh, and you can buy up dice and things. And they've got different types of dice. So there's, there's regular ones. And then there's hard dice, which are always a 10 on a D10. And wiggle ones, which you can set to whatever you want after you've rolled them, which is brilliant. So I'm not going to all the mechanics, but there's there's that kind of element of fiddliness to it. So you can pick something like uh, Death Gaze and have 4d10 in it, so you'll automatically do 4 killing damage to the head and kill anyone you look at, unless they're a, a talent as well. But that's quite dull. So it gets more interesting when you try and use cool powers. But if you want to shoot lightning bolts from your eyes or something, it's quite expensive. So then you've got to pack in other things as well. So it might be that it's loud. So that'll reduce the cost per die that you buy. 
but it means that you can't use it quietly to assassinate people around corners. It's going to make a big bang, or maybe it's you know really bright sh- shattering lights, or maybe you've got to hold both hands to your temples when you use it, or you've got to be under stress, or whatever it is. But it really encourages when you build these powers up to have cool stuff you can do, but then to afford it, you've got to add in all these limitations, which then obviously give you opportunities in the game for how you're going to uh, chip away at that or suggest why powers might not work in certain circumstances and that kind of stuff and come up with counters for it. And I particular like, my favourite, I'll come, come to at the end, is Monsters and Other Childish Things, where you play a bit like Calvin and Hobbes if the tiger was actually Shubnigarath or something like that. So you play a kid and his monster, or usually another player plays the monster who really tries to help, but because it's from Danuclidian space and has an unknowable alien mind, probably helps in all the wrong ways and doesn't do it properly. But part of the generation there, apart from doing all the allocating dice to skills and stats and all the rest of it, was you had to draw the monster. And I can't tell you the awkward situations I've been in sometimes in pubs around Nottingham with a bunch of 30, 40-year-old blocks, all with the crayons out, drawing toy monsters as someone comes around to collect the beer glasses. But it's good fun. But that art of um, visualising really helps as well. I think it was something that was mentioned in Over the Edge. I yeah. It was John Tynes or one of those guys that mentioned it there and said that they forced you to draw a character portrait because there's certain synapses or little connections in your mind that actually get fired when you physically draw something out rather than just describe it or write words about it. So it doesn't matter how crap an artist you are, the art of doing something helps you visualise and create little connections in your mind for that character. So I like it. A, for the, the fiddliness and the tweaks and the nuts and bolts and moving things up and down to try and get your perfect character and the breadth that gives you, but also the cool bits with things like monsters where you actually get your crayons and your glitter out and uh, try out some monsters before you play. And that makes artifacts, and artifacts are cool in games. Correct. Well, I tell, I tell you what, mate, I, I can't believe that independently we both thought our favourite character generation involves making up children. So that's <laughs> interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? That's where Who we all knew? started. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. That's not even going to get me to the stage where uh, do you ever think of the age of your character when you're generating it? Because mine always used to be 21 until I became 21, and now they're not anymore. <laughs> uh, if you wanted an old character, you'd make him like 33 or something, wouldn't you? Because he's a Really old character, yeah. I mean, that's ridiculous. So, yeah. that, that gets you points, doesn't it? Isn't that a disadvantage? Do you have to make aging roles? 30? Yeah. <laughs> Oh dear! Or play exalted and make Asian rolls. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> right. Uh, oh, that's it. This podcast has got to die. Right, mate. I think that's really cool. I think we could go on about character generation because clearly it bleeds into loads of other aspects of of the games that we've enjoyed or not enjoyed, and it's um it's definitely still a really important thing at the beginning, isn't it? Because it sets mm. sets everything else in motion. So maybe maybe it's a topic we'll revisit. What about character death and agency and experience and advancement there's loads more meat to be had off this perhaps yeah but until then we'll thank our patrons for donating us cash and keeping us motivated to talk more about games we love not that we needed much motivation but again keep paying us we'll keep saying it and um thanks guys been a good one this week and there's always places to go to find out more about our stuff and we love comment so look us up on the smart party blog or on our patreon site uh, send us emails. We love to hear stuff. Um, really good to see comments. I know James Mullen was talking about some of our superhero conversation that we had last time out, and that's always really gratifying to hear. So thanks for that, James. We really appreciate your comments, mate. Uh, and more, more and more of the same, please. So that's it from me for this week. 
Yep, hopefully everybody could understand me a little bit through my cold. It probably made Max and sound better. Who knows? But that's all for us from this week, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.